Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 26th, the Monday, 2022. Uh, things are changing dramatically, have been on the culture front uh, for 20, 50 years, perhaps. We just did a show with Richard Reeves, has a new book out. He's a Brookings Institute sociologist, political scientist of boys and men. How uh, everything's been turned on its head. Uh, boys and men are the new girls and women, uh, particularly white boys and men. It's an interesting phenomenon. Some people might suggest hardly surprising and not necessarily a bad thing. Others, like Reeves, are rather concerned. One of the things that occurs to me is that even traditional feminism has seemed to have become almost boring. I watched Don't Worry, Darling, the new movie, rather controversial movie over the weekend. It's an intriguing film. I think it's got some rather unkind reviews. But one review that was fairly accurate, I think, talked about its empty feminism. We take much of the feminism uh, of, uh, of Don't Worry Darling, I think, for granted, which means that it's not quite as a compelling film as it was. Everything then is changing on the gender front, on the race front, uh, on the sexual identity front. And one person who is quite literally, I guess, on this front is my guest today. Hafiza Augustus uh, Jita is the author of a really important and, 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 and highly anticipated new book, The Black Period on Personhood, Race and Origin. And Hafiza is joining us from Brooklyn today. Hafiza, welcome. Hi, uh, thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. So about this thing about boys and, and, and men, Hafiza, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Richard Reeves's argument. But is this something that we should concern ourselves with, as if boys and, and men are the new, shall we say, blacks and women? Um, I'm not familiar with his Booker's argument, but I don't even, I mean, I don't even understand the argument because in every room, men are still in power. They're still, I mean, they're legislating women's wombs right now. So I'm, I guess I don't really see the evidence for the, any of that to be true. Interesting. So let, let's talk about the Black Period. It's it's a memoir, Afiza. What yes. are you trying to do in the book? I mean, obviously, you write about yourself and your memories. I mean, yes. It's so it's both a memoir and kind of like a cultural analysis. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is show the way that essentially the political situation and like this state influences our day to day lives. So often, you know, for the people who are the most, who feel kind of like the hand of the state the most, it's often, you know, women, queer people, uh, black people, indigenous people, people of color. Um, we're the ones who feel the hand of the state in our intimate lives. And so I'm trying to show all the ways that like, you know, to be alive is to be, a, is to essentially be experiencing a political condition and the ways that we are united through that. Why is your your life, Hafiza, so, so much, at least in your view, a mirror of this political struggle? 
Well, um, you know, I think, so my father was born in 1945 in Jim Crow, Alabama, you know, um, and he, he went to legally segregated schools. He, my, um, he moved with his, with his family to Ohio at the tail end of the great migration. My mother was a Nigerian Muslim immigrant and she died two years after 9-11. And you can literally see the history of this country um, through both sides of my family, through like immigration, but also through just the black American experience. And so I think it really illustrates, okay, like this is the way policy filters down into an individual life. Just for example, um, you know, my mother died uh, in 2003 and it, and just the, the experience of trying to grieve a Muslim woman in a country where was was every time a Muslim person was dead, it was almost it was celebrated. You know, it was uh, it's still a very Islamophobic time, but it was so deeply and so blatantly state sanctioned at that time. And just so like that, the the way I had to experience that grief was very political. You wrote an interesting piece uh, for Salon this year. Uh, this uh, I think it was last uh, Independence Day. This Independence Day. We are less free than the year before. We must work together for liberty, you, you argue. It's parade season, the, the season of celebrating hard-run freedoms. As a queer Nigerian-American woman, the three weeks between mid-June and early July uh, should be a cause of joy. But instead, I look at these spectacles and feel cognitive dissonance. Um, are things getting worse in your mind in America when it comes to discrimination? I mean, I think that, I mean, it's hard. It's never been a good time, you know? No, I, I don't think anyone assumes that, especially. Yeah, and America. so just like worse, I think it's just like worse than what and worse for who. Um, and so it's, I think that, that we faced new challenges um, in responding to like, you know, like we now live in a, a surveillance state, which in which the state can surveil us in ways it has never been able to do before. Um, we live in a time where, you know, we're celebrating freedom, but essentially we've all been told that at some point we are going to have to get, you know, COVID, which is, which for some even vaccinated can be life-threatening. And now we're also just starting to see, you know, the 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 effects and threat of long COVID, which is a mass disabling event. Um, yeah, so, yeah. It's Anything to celebrate, Hafiza? In, I mean, of in course, September I think that like- 2022? I think that like, you know, the, the thing about my book is that it is, despite all the things that, you know, we're, up against it is a very celebratory book and ends in joy because i think one of the most amazing things i i kind of experienced and learned over the course of writing this book is just you know how many people are doing the work of fighting for justice and fighting for freedom and there's so much work going in going on in community and i think that that is actually one of the most incredible things and so i think the course of writing my memoir even despite looking at the violence it made me a hardcore optimist because I think our algorithm is designed to to show us the misery and we're not taught we don't actually see all the ways that people are working in community to try to push against this and I think the the remarkable thing that I saw in like the research for my book is like you name a problem and there's somebody who's working on it 
And I think that is pretty miraculous. Yeah, an interesting uh, conversation on confronting complicated questions of one's own life when writing memoir. In terms of writing this book, what did you learn about yourself in the process of writing uh, the Black period that you didn't know before writing it? Well, I think that one of the things that writing a memoir does, you have to, it is a very deep and extensive look back at yourself and your own past. And I think one of the things that was, one of the things I had to do over and over again is to look like, how do I remember things? Is this the way I remember? And what, what am I choosing to remember? And what are the barriers of memory? And just thinking about how much um, of my, my, the grief around my mother's death was, you know, also tangled around that time, that post 9-11 time, also trying to think, okay, what had, you know, grief blocked me out from remembering? Um, and what had essentially the work of, you know, the anti-Blackness of this country stopped me from remembering about my own past. And I think what I looked, when I went looked back, I really saw just all the inventive ways my parents worked to give me as like, you know, a young black girl, a story and a history that I could believe in and be proud of, despite the ones that I was given to, I was given to by this country. And I think, you know, looking back, I really saw that like, despite limited resources, that the ingenuity that is in like, you know, in just in the way like black people come together to work in community is actually quite amazing. What do you remember about your mother? She's such an important figure in the in the memoir. Yeah, I think that, you know, after, when I was like looking through kind of like her archives and the things that we have, you know, my mom died kind of like before, really before the explosion of like the personal online foot, like fingerprint. So they're not, there are really no traces of her other than, you know, the physical parts that we have. And, you know, I was looking through her things and I found this award that she had gotten from the Black Caucus in Akron, Ohio for helping uh, African immigrants adjust to the area. And, you know, I remember going to some of those caucus meetings with her as a child, pretty much just like waiting for her to finish, but kind of not realizing what she what she was doing while we were waiting for her to finish. She was building community. She was helping people, you know, adjust to a world that you know, in very many, in many ways was hostile to them, you know, as African immigrants coming to a country that's just 30 30 years outside of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and so I think just see, looking back and seeing how important community and braiding, our, braiding the Nigerian side of my history with the American side of my history was to her. What about as a mother, though, outside politics, as a girl remembering her? Well, I mean, I think that being a mother is inherently political. I mean, it's how it's a very difficult state to say, thing to say mother outside of politics, especially now when the right to either be or not be one is very political. And so I think that, you know, everything that there's something political involved in raising a black child. So it's a tricky question to be outside of like the political because you can see, I can see the way 
she's trying to write her own story in everything she did, including, you know, my my mother for if you looking back, she was she was kind of she was ahead of her time in many ways. She baked her own bread, she was vegan, she shopped at a co-op, she started every morning with yoga, you know, the things that you think of you know, a very certain type of person doing now. You think of it's like that, that type of wellness is like very much often reserved for a certain, like, you know, white white woman of a certain class. But thinking of all the ways my mother, like knowing just all the ways this country can try to kill you, really try to embrace wellness and her, and, you know, her own health, I think is something that I remember. And what about the grieving? I mean, how did that affect you as a woman losing your mother when she was so young? Well, I mean, I think I think regardless of who you are, like losing a mother is kind of like a found it's foundational because it's your origin story. And I think that like for me, I was 19 when she died. And so, you know, I was very young and at that kind of crucial crossing of when because you, when you're that young you're, you're you're still very much a child in many ways and it just really at that crucial crossing between like you know girlhood and womanhood and essentially all the things that that you you see that other people get to experience you know you kind of have to figure that out on your own and so yeah I think that it's there's not a single way in which her death did not affect me what about in terms of your evolution as, as a poet? Many people will be familiar with your first book, uh, Un-American Poems. Um, when did you start writing poetry and, and, and how did your mother's death affect that? Yeah, I think poetry was definitely like my first art form. I started writing it as a kid. And, you know, when I realized that, oh, there's a thing called an MFA that you can study poetry, um, I went to do that. I think it was you know, the, the very first thing that I found that I was, that, that like, I was really, really good at um, was writing. And so like, I stuck with it um, as, and I think that in terms of how my mother's death impacted my writing and my poetry, I think it lays you bare. Um, the cover that you showed of the poetry collection is actually a um, it's a painting that my father painted of my mother nine months pregnant with my sister because my father is a visual artist. And one of the things about the Black period is that includes um, about like 66 images from my father. Like, for example, here's one um, like that image on the cover is in there. But like, here's one. It has like two color inserts. Um, But yeah, I think that in terms of like her death, you know, poetry is one of those, like any writing, any art form is something that you have to be vulnerable to. And I think that like death, whether it is, you know, what is someone like a mother, it, and especially like so young and so unexpected, it really does make you tap in to the temporality of everything and to really and to really try to figure out like what you're looking at because your guide is gone. And I think that is the work of a writer is to figure out what are, what are we looking at here? Most of us are not lucky enough to have an artist as a father and most of us don't write memoirs. What was it like not only to have an artist as a, as a father, but to have your memoir itself as you just revealed um, 
dignified, if that's the right word, by his artwork. Yeah, I think that it was it was very fun to put together. And, you know, from the moment I started this memoir, there was never a version of it that existed without the artwork, because, you know, I can remember certain parts of my life by looking at my father's paintings. I can tell you what house we, I can look at a painting and tell you what house we lived in when we, when he made it. I can tell you, you know, I can tell you so much about like the time period, the moments by the way his styles changed. And so I think for me, it really was, it really was an integral part of the story because through my father's art, I learned that that there are different ways to interpret the world that you see. Um, and that that there's always more than one way to tell a story. And so I think that the great part about kind of like seeing the book in its final is really seeing that in this very wonderful way, the way my me and my father's art are speaking to each other. He also did the, uh, the art that's on the cover, um, but like looking at the way the art kind of intermingled with the text, I'm just like, okay, you know, I really am my father's child. And there's something, you know, really beautiful in being able to see that. Perhaps um, you might say a few words about your father, um, uh, uh, Hafiza. Not, not everyone would be familiar with Tyra and Jeter. Mm -hmm. Just explain, you mentioned earlier that he was he was born in Alabama. Tell us a little bit about his, his life, his, a brief biography of your father. Yeah, so my father was born in Alabama. He moved to Ohio with my grandmother and his two sisters when he was, I think, 15. Um, and he lived there for a long time. He went to Ohio University where he got um, not just an undergrad degree in painting, but he also got an, uh, his MFA in painting. Um, and I think he was I think, only the second Black person at Ohio University to, you know, to graduate from that art department at the time. And then he met my my mother was there visiting my auntie Myro at the time who was who was uh, doing her master's I think in education from Nigeria and they they met and then they went on two dates they got married um, and then after being married my father eventually he moved back to Nigeria with my mother where they had me me and my sister my older sister and I think they lived there for seven years I think that that time really became a formative time for my father because you know looking around and seeing like even though you can see the hand of like colonialism everywhere but you're also in a black country which you know is i think which i can imagine just like that momentary relief for my father coming out of uh, coming out of the time he did you know he was and while he was at, at ohio university he got drafted um but luckily because he had a little bit of college he didn't get drafted into like the actual like Vietnam War, like the the fighting. He was sent to Germany to assemble to like be a munition sergeant. And um, after he and my mom got married, they they lived in Nigeria for seven years. They moved to the U.S. because Nigeria was just at that point too dangerous. And he in in the U.S. we moved back to Ohio. He taught uh, art at University of Akron for a long time before we moved to South Carolina, where he retired from an HBCU in South Carolina. Um, but his entire life, he, you know, he has been a dedicated artist and that's always been like central to, to who he is. And I think that that's really where I, I think where I'm able to 
to do what I do. You know, I think a lot of parents, if their kids told them that they wanted to get an MFA in creative writing, they'd be like, but what are you going to do with it? Whereas like my father always celebrated it. Um, and so like art has always been a central part of my life, I think because of who he is. And, and he's also just like supremely talented. Why did you call the book The Black Period? Yeah, so um, kind of like for two reasons. Like as a poet, I love double meaning. And so for on one end, my father loves Goya's black paintings. And whenever Goya's black paint, Francisco Goya's black paintings are kind of terrifying. They show, you know, kind of like the ghoulish heart of man. And he's painted them using mainly blacks. And whenever I saw it, I'm just like, this is terrifying, but my father loves them because his his whole thing is do you know how hard it is to paint in blacks and so where i saw terror he saw skill and that was the first lesson in that like what you see depends on who's looking so for so it's partly that and the and the other meaning is that this book really is an exploration of like deep time and what like about like what is the length of time in a lifetime right and how like what are we responsible for and thinking of the black period as its own kind of the same way we say like you know it's the uh time of like it's the age of aquarius the age of innocence um thinking about the way time works inside communities of color and the way like our time like we live with our ancestors um and history is very much alive you know when i think i did the math doing this book that my father was i think had entered his teenage years with someone who was born into slavery was still alive, you know? And if you really think about that, um, it really makes you question just like, when we say like the past is the past, you know, but for who and what does that mean? And so I loved how the title, like, you know, could represent both the art and, you know, this, this question about, you know, how long is history? We've done a number of shows recently, uh, Hafiza, on the American dream, particularly from a, a migrant point of view, also from an African-American point of view. Your book touches on it. It's about, in a sense, what uh, your publisher calls the grind of the American dream. What does that dream mean to you? Is it absurd? Is it real? Could it be something that might offer you and others uh, potential? I think that, you know, in order for, I think that's a very complicated question. And it's the idea of American dream is always way more complex than people want. So people so often want to face because right now we have to question, you know, what is the meaning of America now, especially, or I mean, or ever, you know, it was founded in the idea, the idea that a country could be founded in both freedom and enslavement, you know, and thinking about what America is in this current iteration of it in terms of what's happening with COVID, what's happening with conservative movements and, you know, just like nationalistic movements rising everywhere. I think that in terms of the American dream that it was never intended to be for black people. So it's kind so it's I so I don't even know how to answer that because it was never intended for it to be accessible for a large portion of people. And so I think that the that what else 
can we dream into is what something that like my memoir and my work is more interested in is this idea that okay you know we that there are there are many different types of worlds that we can create um and many different ways to dream about freedom do you see yourself as a as a symbol as a reflection on because you're pretty unusual on many fronts. I mean, you know, you can talk broadly about whites or blacks, but no one really fits into any of those categories. Um, what do you think your book can teach others politically who may not share everything about you, perhaps your sexuality, your history, your relationship with Africa or America? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm a symbol. I think I'm... I'm a person who's looking really hard at things. Um, and I think that one of the things that can be learned from, maybe learned through my book is essentially what I had to learn is that right now it's easy to just I mean, there's so much going on just between politics, COVID, which is now politics. There's just like so much to look at and everyone, we're all overwhelmed. And so our first response is to just like to look away but through the course of my, you know, the kind of the the work of my memoir is to was to essentially like take all of this, like this nonsense and this these aspects of the world that really impact us, and to be like, what am I looking at? And I think that through the book, just trying to like slowly untangle, like what is it that we're actually looking at, is that I actually found that like it is not that is not the over overwhelming part that like the more you understand the way the webs of oppression are connected, the actually, the actual, you get the more relief there is. Cause you think you'll look back at history. I, and this is the fight against CRT that like, um, that to not teach history. But if you look back at history and understand it, like it's, there's nothing to be scared of that the more history I uncovered, the more I understood, the better I felt, you know, despite all the violences that you're looking at, but it just makes you understand that like all that we didn't get here mysteriously, you know, that like this is all by someone's design. And once we understand that, we can we can act. We, we don't have to be immobilized because we're overwhelmed. And I hope that people will find relief and just be like, okay, it is possible to understand this and see that there is a reason you feel like this. And it is, and that like, that reason is a country. And that reason, of course, is politics. You mentioned CRT, uh, critical racial theory. Um, we did a show uh, with um, uh, an cultural writer, uh, uh, Brandy Collins Dexter. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work last week. She has an interesting new book out, Black Skinhead, which calls into question African-Americans' uh, unthinking uh, affection for the Democratic Party, loyalty to the Democratic Party. In political terms, Hafiza, what... Um, what are you advising in this book? What, in conventional political terms, are there fixes through traditional political means, through the Democratic Party, for example? Or are, there, are, are the real struggles beyond politics or extra political? I mean, I think it's both politics is the arena that we have, but to 
like one of the arenas we have. But like, I think if I if my book is advocating anything, it's an abolitionist politics. Um, I don't think that you can reform this system. Um, and so I think the idea of like, how can we move away from racial capitalism? How can we, how can we move away from a system that essentially like prioritizes money to our death, you know, and we are seeing that now. And I think that one of the ways that we see people pushing against that is unions. Like Home Depot has a union, Starbucks has unions. And I think that that like um, for everywhere, you know, people are oppressed, there are people rising up. So there are political solutions for this. There is hope for you. Sure, I think that there there is always hope. I think that I think that especially black people are, you know, we are experts in hope. I think the prison, uh, the prison abolitionist Miriam Kava says, you know, hope is a discipline. And I think you have to be disciplined to hope because hope is also a map, you know, it, tell, it like helps you guide, guide you to new possibilities and helps you imagine the impossible because, you know, freedom has freedom for certain people has always been deemed as impossible. And yet here I am, you know. I had a, I've had several conversations with the uh, African-American uh, historian, Carol Anderson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, quite an influential writer. Um, we talked in one of our conversations about the hope you talk about. And I half jokingly said it in the conversation, uh, Carol, you know, she's a, like you in many ways, a great critic of the American experiment. I said, you're hopeful, you're kind of American. And she laughed and she said, I'm more American than most Americans. Do you think that Hafiza, the one quality of Americanness is is indeed hope, optimism, positivism? Is there something in that sense American about your memoir too? Well, I mean, I think that people are hopeful um, in general. I don't think that hope is an American quality. I think that thinking that hope is like American quality is an American quality. Um, but I think that to have a child, you know, to raise a child, to to just like get up every day, I think that there is, that one has to be hopeful. One has to believe, that, you know, that that something new and surprising can happen. Um, but I think in terms of like, is, is my book an American memoir? I think, of course, of course it is. I was raised in this country. And um, even though I moved here when I was three, like I am a product of this country. And so this, this country helped write me and I cannot unwrite that influence out of my life. You know, but I think, you know, in terms of what Carl Anderson is saying that, of course, yeah. I think that one of the, that like the criticism is, that like that black people are deeply American, even though we're treated as unpatriotic. Think about Colin Kaepernick, you know, like that the idea to criticize the country and to hold this country like accountable to justice is is what this country was supposedly founded on in terms of just like the like the the writing on the paper. That was not what happened in practice. And yet, it's not just American traditions. You, 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 you add the, the mythology of Atlas. It's perhaps one of the central themes in the memoir. How influenced were you by, uh, particularly Greek mythology, in the in the writing of the book? 
Well, I think that, you know, I'm influenced by, because the, the book is about like our origin stories, um, who gets to write them, where they get to start. And so the book is preoccupied with origin stories. You know, one of the threads that is through there is I went to a like all girls mainly white catholic school growing up from like first through ninth grade and that was and the idea christianity it's its own like origin story and own myth and i'm very fascinated with like how we like the for the the ground zero from which we write ourselves and i think atlas is one of those very fascinating myths because atlas permeates so much um and it is a myth that like spreads from cultures and like histories and the fact that this that this myth that we ascribe to whiteness like has its its origins elsewhere you know another proof that like a story is so deeply influenced by who tells it well, that's good stuff and it's a major literary event came out last week uh the Black Period on Personhood, Race, and Origin by Hafiza Augustus Jeetum, my guest today. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, Hafiza, uh, you know, you're, you're in the book business too. You're an agent, so you know the challenges uh, involved in writing a, a, a book, particularly a first, uh, I mean, it's your second book, but the first book was one of poetry. So congratulations on that. Thank you. What else uh, are you uh, reading? I, I'm sure you get to read a lot uh both uh, in, as your work as an agent but also as as just a general reader what what have you been enjoying recently yes i do read i read for a living and for a pleasure um i think uh one of the books that i'm reading right now is this one called no more police by Miriam Coven andrea ritchie um it's a case for abolition and it's incredible um i'm also reading the Overstory by Richard Powers, which is incredible. Um, it's it's just one of the most incredible books. Um, I'm reading Christina Rivera Garza's memoir, Liliana's Invisible Summer, which comes out in February from Hogarth, which is amazing. And I'm also reading Christina Sharp's uh, Ordinary Notes, which is a memoir that comes out um, in April from FSG.